have new glorified bodies. And if you're looking for me in heaven, if we have any say in the matter, uh, I'll be the one with Chris Hemsworth's body and with uh, Guy Penrod's hair. I always love watching the, the Gaither vocal band. I love that white hair and beard and mustache he has. Uh, and thank you for that uh, communion meditation. I appreciate that. Well, you may be wondering uh, all through service what this bell is for over here. And I'm going to try to honor your time this morning in the time we have remaining. And, and you're just going to have to wait until the end of my message to, to understand what that's about. But if you were with us for the first time today, we've been in this series called Freeway. And we're talking about what it means to live in the freedom that Christ offers. Now, if you were here a few weeks ago, we began to talk about our lives compared to uh, the prodigal son, and really our lives can be compared to that old couch in our family room. And if you ever get the nerve to take the cushions off that couch, then you better take a moment to prepare your heart and your soul for what you might experience beneath those cushions. Some of you, if you dig down deep enough, you'll find enough food there to feed your family for a week. Sometimes it's a gruesome sight, uh, crumbs and potato chips and peanuts M&Ms and silverware that you might have been missing. Uh, you may find some Kleenexes there from the last time you had a cold and now you're growing a science experiment inside of, of the couch. Now on the surface, everything looks great. In fact, you've been sitting on that couch for days and weeks and sometimes months. But deep down, some things are going on. You know, our lives are a lot like that, and for many of us, we look good on the outside, but all it takes is a moment to lift the cushions, and, and you'll see we're living with the clutter of bondage, and we're living with the, the clutter of past memories and how they continue to, to hurt us with their crustiness and their messiness. And if you get down deep inside, we may not look so great. Some of us are bound by our past and things are holding us back from things that happened to us. And then there's the trials of the now, the tribulations and the temptations of today that hold us back in our relationship with God. And there's a bunch of this stuff beneath the cushions in our lives. And many times we've been sitting on those, not for months, but for years. And we're trying to act like we're free and, and, and show other people that we are alive in Christ. And so we post pictures on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all those things that make things look good. But deep down inside, we know we're struggling with freedom. And we've been talking from God's Word with real examples of what it means to be free. And a few weeks ago... We learned that the first ramp onto that freeway of life is the first step, and that is awareness. we got to be aware of that something is, is holding us captive. And this is where we talked about praying the search me prayer that David prayed about in Psalm 139. If you have the scripture with you this morning, I want you to turn there with me in Psalm 139. And I hope some of you have this underline in your Bible, verses 23 and 24 where he simply prays, investigate my life, O God. Find out everything about me, cross-examine and test me. Get a clear picture of what I'm about. See for yourself what, if I've done anything wrong and guide me on the road to eternal life. God, there is something within me and I want you to express it to me. What is it that needs to change? What is it that keeps me getting stuck 
in captivity. And then last week we talked about step number two, which is discovery. Once you're aware of the problem that's going on, you discover the sin that's inside of you. That there's habits or there's things in our past that need attention. There's some patterns that are unhealthy going on in our lives. And what needs to change? Next week we're going to be talking about step number four, which is a huge step. It's the step of forgiveness. It's going to be a big weekend for any of us who need to be forgiven. And for any of us who need to extend forgiveness to somebody in our lives. But today, in the time I have, we're going to talk about step number three. And if you've got your Bible or, or you've got that Bible app on your phone, it's going to come from Genesis 3 in the Old Testament. And I know many of you have been up with me to this, up, uh, staying with me to this point, but I'll be honest and say I know I'm going to lose some of you today on step three. Because step three is a tough step. And I'll be honest, I'm uneasy about this day for myself. Not only because of my time constraints, but because for many of you, I know. It's easy to pray that prayer of, of step one and awareness of search me, God, and know my heart. And, and as probing as step two can be with discovery. Yeah, Bill, I know there's stuff in my life that needs to change. Well, today, some of you, you're going to check out. And you're going to say, Bill, this is too hard. I, I, I don't want freedom that badly. Because today is step number three, and this is the step of ownership. What do you do when you discover things through Christ in your life that need attention? Are you going to blame other people? Are you going to run and hide and seclude yourself? Are you going to bury your head and just keep going as if nothing's wrong? Or are you going to take personal responsibility and ownership? Because listen to me, my friends, this life in Christ, this freedom that he has planned for us, you can't blame your way to freedom. And ownership is a scary step. And authentically doing this, friends, this is what separates the men from the boys, from people who just talk the talk to those who truly walk the walk. This is, a, this is a step of real discipleship, of following Jesus. And for those who really mean business, when you want to get on with your life, when you want to move past the past, or you want to find a way in Christ to be free, this is where it happens. And we love to blame others, don't we? If we're driving down the freeway and you come upon somebody that's just poking along, they're excessively slow, what do you say or what do you think, you know? Come on, you idiot, pick it up. Or when somebody comes zipping around you really fast, you think, maniac, I mean, got somewhere to be in a hurry? But you, you're always driving the speed limit, aren't you? You know better than that. Even though you're 10 and 2, you know, and yet something about our life, we know what it is to play the victim card. We've all learned it within our lives, and the condition of our lives has been this way ever since Adam and Eve in the Old Testament. Now, I have only two points this morning that I want to drive home, and the first one is this. Taking ownership within your life means I stop blaming God and others for my circumstances. I stopped blaming God and others for my circumstances. You know, Cheryl and I are blessed 
to have two wonderful children, two beautiful girls within our life. And we had the pleasure of, of teaching them to stand, teaching them to walk, teaching them to talk, teaching them to feed themselves, teaching them how to brush their teeth, teaching them how to play. But the one thing we never had to teach them was how to play blame. Blaming comes natural to children. And I remember more than once being in the other room and you could hear them playing together and their voices would start to escalate and pretty soon it would be shouting and you would hear a, or a cry or a scream and you'd go running and you'd say, what happened? And Emma would start, Olivia took my, touched my, broke my, you know, uh, did all this stuff. And, and, and you'd ask Olivia, what happened, Olivia? Well, she wasn't playing with it, or she took this, or she broke this, or, or I hit her on accident, you know. It, it wasn't. And if you were a single kid, a parent, you know, a single child home, you blame the dog, or you blame the cat, or you blame the iguana, whatever it was. If you didn't have another kid to blame, if you're a Southern Baptist kid like me, you just blame the devil for whatever you did. I mean, we blame somebody or something for everyone. And with respect to Lady Gaga, baby, we were just born that way. And in Genesis chapter 3, when we learn about the fall of humanity, it's the very first sin of Adam and Eve who dine on forbidden fruit. And they're hiding from God in the trees and behind fig leaves. And we pick up reading in chapter 3, verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they tried to hide from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I, I was naked and so I hid. And, after he, and, and he said, who told you that you were naked? Adam, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now, isn't it interesting that for the woman to be deceived, it took the serpent the fallen angel from heaven, Lucifer, the very personification of evil to deceive her. But for Adam, all it took was a naked woman. I mean, I want you to notice all the blame that's going on here. God, I'm the victim of the serpent. God, I'm, I'm the victim of this naked woman. And, and you see the blame game? Friends, it's in our spiritual DNA. It's part of our heritage. It's part of our shared history. And as long as Adam could blame Eve for what happened, he didn't feel so bad about himself. As long as Eve could blame the serpent, she didn't feel so bad about herself. And there's a word in our culture for what Adam and Eve did, and it's called victimization. You constantly blame other people or events or, or circumstances for what's going on in your life. Now, friends, I know I'm going to get some pushback on this. But you need to hear this, and I, I need to say this. We say these things all the time. You know, I, I'm, I've been treated unfairly. How come I always get the short end of the stick? Why am I always the one that gets the, the rotten deal? I was dealt a lousy hand of cards. 
Some of you blame your parents. My parents got a divorce, so how am I supposed to know what it means to be a good spouse? Some of you blame your wife. You know, she blows up about everything, and we end up in an argument. Some of you blame your husbands. He just doesn't know how to communicate, so how else am I supposed to respond to him? Some of you blame the church. It's the preacher's fault. He, he, he goes too deep or he's too shallow sometimes. We blame the schools. It's the school's fault that my kids aren't smarter than they are. We blame the politicians. I mean, that's why everything's going wrong. It's those cold-hearted Republicans or it's those irresponsible Democrats. We, we blame our heritage. Of course I have a temper. I'm Irish. Or, 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 of course, I'm a perfectionist. Of course, I'm strong-willed. I'm a German heritage person. We blame our past. Of course, I spend too much. It's only because we didn't have stuff when I was a child. And even though as a parent, you've got it memorized, Proverbs 22.6, start off a child in the way they should go, and when they're old, they will not depart from it. But your child has learned, and you've learned, to feel guilty because they've chosen some bad pathways on their own. And they've made you believe it must be my fault. And I guess it's because, well, well, I didn't have an example of what a good dad or a good mom was like growing up. If you lose your job, it's not your fault. It's your boss's fault. He's unreasonable. He doesn't understand you. In fact, your boss had it out for you the first day you walked on the job. If you have a bad relationship... It's not your fault. You're normal. You're healthy. It's the other person. They've got issues in their life, right? Does any of this sound familiar to any of you in your ears? It's the human situation ever since Adam and Eve. And this is me. And this is you. We learn early on how to proclaim the victim's battle cry. It's not my fault. Now I want you to Read out loud with me this verse from the New Testament in 1 John. Read this aloud with me. This is the Phillips paraphrase, by the way. If we refuse to admit that we are sinners, then we live in a world of illusion and truth becomes a stranger to us. You see, the greatest roadblock, friends, in, in, to the freeway in my life is me. The greatest roadblock to the freeway in your life is, is you. And we've got to stop blaming God and stop blaming others and circumstances. And I know some of you want to push back and say, Bill, are you saying I've got to take the blame for everything that's happened in my life? No, I, I'm not saying that at all. Many of you, I mean, I've listened to your story and I know all of us, at one time or another, we really have been victims. We really have been hurt in our life. And if you've been hurt in some unjust ways, here's the second point I want you to catch. Taking ownership excuse me, means it may not be my fault, but I take responsibility. Taking ownership means it may not be my fault. But I take responsibility. I don't know about your life completely, but I know some things have happened in my life that aren't my fault. I've been hurt. I've been maligned. I've been betrayed. I've been disparaged. I, I've been given things that I didn't know how to, to deal with and how to respond to that. I, I've been given injustice to move forward to from, but that's my responsibility. 
It may not be my fault, but it is my responsibility. And there are simply three words that can be chain-busting words in the life of every believer. And the three words are, I own it. I own it. The problem of us is, some of us would rather be right than be free. And then some of us would rather blame than be healed. Some of us would rather play the victim card than accept responsibility. I want to show you a very interesting passage in in the book of John. I want you to turn into the New Testament with me here this morning. How much time do I have? 1125. John chapter 5. I want you to see this story in the Gospel of John with me. John chapter 5, verse 1, it says this. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five colored, uh, color, covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. And one was there who'd been an invalid for 38 years. This whole man's life, his whole identity had been wrapped up in lying by this pool at Bethesda. It wasn't a great life, but it was all that he knew. And his life was that of a beggar. And the scripture continues, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, Jesus asked him, do you want to get well? Now let me just say, when I used to read that, my first response was, um, obvious question, Jesus, of course. I mean, this guy's been suffering for 38 years. Why would you ever ask him a question like that? Of course he wants to get well. But let me tell you, after being a minister for about 30 years now and working with a lot of different people, I don't think that's an unreasonable question at all. It's it's not an obvious question at all anymore because it's entirely possible that this man doesn't want to get well anymore. Jesus is saying, I have the power to really make you well, but I'm not going to exercise that power until you decide that you really want to get well, because if I heal you, what's going to happen in this guy's life is things are going to change. And honestly, maybe you don't want things to change. If I make you well, you're not going to be a beggar like you've been for 38 years anymore. And that's all you knew. That's your identity. That's your job. That's been your source of income and who you are. So now what do you want to do? Do you really want to get well? You see, there's a price to pay if you want to get well. If you want to end up healthy and free, and Jesus is asking, do you want to get well? And if yes, then health and and freedom and life can take place. And so it's a really fair question for me to ask every one of you this morning. Do you really want to be free? Do you really want to be free? Now, I know you say, of course I want freedom in my life, and and I really want Jesus to make me well. But do you really? Because if you do, friends, there's a price you're going to have to pay. And part of that is you're going to have to give up one of the most cherished roles in your life. You're going to have to give up and pay the price of retiring as an injustice collector. 
You could no longer be an injustice collector. In other words, if you want to get well, you're going to have to give up endlessly rehearsing and repeating all the things you think other people have done to you. You're going to have to get up how badly you feel your life has been hurt, how everyone has mistreated you, and you're going to have to give up looking at the world as a hostile and an unfair place. And then you're going to have to pay this price. You're going to have to give up your grudges, and you're going to have to forgive some people. And let's be honest. Some of you in this room, you don't know what to do if you didn't have grudges because it's become your identity. It's become almost the reason you get up in the morning and the motivation that you have. And if you want to get well, friends, you're going to have to stick your neck out and make some close friends again. And maybe for the first time, you're going to have to start trusting people instead of pushing everyone away and keeping them at arm's length from you. And then if you want to get well, you're going to have to give up getting sympathy from others as your identity. See, there's kind of a perverse satisfaction we get in being an injustice collector, isn't there? It's your identity, and I ask you, do you really want to be free? Do you really want to be healed? And if your answer to that is, yes, Bill, but I'm scared. Or if your answer to that is, yes, Bill, but I, but I don't know what to do and how to do that, then let me tell you there is only one thing I know of that can give you the courage to rise above the hurt. One thing that will lead you out of the guilt that will wash the shame off of you so that you can begin to take ownership and responsibility for your life. And that is this. Friends, you've got to know in the core of your core, of the core of your being, that you are loved unconditionally by God, that you are loved and forgiven absolutely, and that you are forever loved by God in heaven who made you. Because without a relationship with him, without the knowledge of him, you'll never have the courage. Without the gift of the Holy Spirit within you, you'll never have the strength and the knowledge as the foundation to be able to take all the pieces of your past, all the good, the bad, and the ugly, so that he can help you rise above. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, you know, Bill, you're talking to somebody else. You're not talking to me. I mean, right now, <clears throat> I'm doing just fine. It's all good, you know, in my life. Let me just warn you and tell you that's exactly what King David thought. He was doing just fine. Thank you very much. I mean, he'd only committed adultery with Bathsheba. He'd only uh, killed her husband, the, the Hittite, Uriah the Hittite. And yet he had never confessed it to God. Neither of the things. He thought he'd pulled off the perfect crime and gotten away with it from, from everyone and everybody, including God, almost for a year until a guy named Nathan showed up, a best friend, a good counselor for David. And Nathan tells David a story, and it's a very famous story that I'm sure you know. It's a story about a rich man that's so rich that he's got all these cattle and all these sheep and all these herds. And it's a story about a man who's the poorest of the poor. And all he and his family have is one little sheep. And it's just treasured sheep. In fact, it is so treasured, they bring it in to eat with them at the table. 
Well, this rich man has a friend visit from out of town rather than take one of his herds or, or, or one of his sheep. He goes and he seizes this one little lamb of this guy and he sacrifices it. He, he kills it and prepares it and gives it to his desk or to his guest. And David is listening to the story and David is, is outraged and he, and he says, you know, this is outrageous. This is, this is unthinkable. I mean, what kind of person would do that? This man deserves to die. Who is this guy? And Nathan looks at him very simply and says, David, you're the man. And it wasn't in the sense of a praise of saying, David, you're the man. It was in the sense of letting him know, you're the one. And Nathan explains, David, God gave you everything. He gave you palaces, he gave you power. He gave you positions and prominence. And if you lacked anything, all you had to do was ask him. But you had to go and take the one thing that Uriah the Hittite had. You took his beautiful wife and then you killed him. David, you murdered him. You're the man. And it's time to take ownership. And friends, to David's credit, he humbled himself. And we're told in 2 Samuel 12, 13 that David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord's taken away your sin and you are not going to die. It's a courageous thing that Nathan did, but David would even say the prayer in Psalm 51, 4, God against you and you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight. So God, you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Lord, I need forgiveness. So again, friends, here's my question to you. Are you going to stop blaming God and others in all your circumstances for your life, for your situation, and take responsibility today? And at the risk of some of you walking away, can I just be candid with you today? Because someday I'm going to have to stand before God and I'm going to have to give an account for everything in his word that I chose to share with you and everything I chose not to share. And I, and I want to be able to stand before God one day and say, God, I spoke some things that were true even though it was hard. There's some very practical things, and I'm going to wrap this up here this morning, that we can do that lead us into this freeway. Some of you this morning... You need to take ownership of your drinking today. You think you can handle it? You can't. Some of you just say, well, I, I'm just a, I, I don't drink all the time. I just take a glass of wine every night to relax. Friends, addictions come in many forms. And you say, I'm not an alcoholic, okay? Then you give it up for 30 days and you see how you do. Now let me say some word about food. And, and before I do, you know Many of you do that this has been my issue. It's been my struggle with all, all my life. I've struggled with food. I've been given it as, as a reward of approval of good behavior in my life. And for those of you that might be struggling with this, I, I do too. But friends, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, don't you know that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit that's in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. And if your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit, Friends, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is self-control. Your health matters to Jesus. And this year, obesity deaths will, will out-trump alcohol-related deaths in this country. 
And I can't shy away from it. I have to take responsibility. I have to accept ownership for it. Now, some of you, you don't, ex you don't struggle with overweight issues, but maybe you struggle the other way with not eating or, or with anorexia or bulimia. And, and I know because you're here and the reason you do is because of the image you have in your mind that either you've placed there or was presented to you by your family, sometimes through the media, that this is how you should look. This is how you should act. This is what you need to be in order to be loved. Not counting for the fact that the Son of God loved you so much and thought you were so beautiful that He went to the cross to die for you, to declare the worth of your life. And friends, you don't have to live that way anymore. You could take ownership of it. Some of you here today, men and women, you're here and, and, and you're addicted to porn. You've been a Christian for many, many years, but you're a Christian that's addicted to porn. And you know the cycle. You pull it up, you look at it, you feel guilty and ashamed, and you, you pray and you ask God for, for forgiveness. You promise you'll never do it again, but you do it again, and it's just a cycle that goes on and on, and you need to open up to God truly about it. And men, you need to share it with another man to hold you accountable. Women, you need to share it with, with another woman to hold you accountable. And I know some men who will say, well, I can never do that. I'm, I'm just going to keep praying about this and studying about this, and, and I'll get over it. But friends, you've been doing that for 10 years. Why do you think it's going to work now? For some of you, the price of well-being is you've got to confess your sins and find some faithful friends. Some of you here this morning, you've got a chip on your shoulder so big for somebody, even in this congregation that you sit feet from, and it has been breaking your back, breaking your shoulders. And let me just say, if Jesus Christ can be abused, and ridiculed, and mocked, and beaten, and crucified. And yet, in Luke 23, 34, if it says Jesus could look and say, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Friends, if he can do that, honestly, let me just say, if you're better than Jesus, you can get a pass on this one. But if you're not, you need to forgive somebody today i got to wrap this up. So some of you, you know, you're in destructive relationships. You need to break it off. Some of you, you need to ask for help in your relationships, whatever it is. Now, friends, nothing I've said this morning has been said to be condemning or disparaging or condescending. And I know for many of the things I just listed, you know, I've struggled with things in my life too. But what I'm saying for all of us in this room is this. The next step may be the most critical but we have to take it if we want to get well. Do you know in the core of your core that you are loved unconditionally and eternally? And based on that love, you can move forward in his love. And today, Jesus is asking you, just like he did to a man 2,000 years ago by a pool at Bethesda, do you want to get well? Really? You see, Jesus loves us enough to speak the truth. Now, 
this bell. You've been wondering, what's this bell all about? We all know the saying, don't we? After some event at school or at work or in our lives, he or she has been saved by the bell, right? You know, there is an epidemic going on around the world right now. It doesn't get as much press as it once did. It's the epidemic of Ebola, and they're wondering how many countries it's going to impact. If you went back in the 17th and 18th century, it wasn't Ebola. It was rather an epidemic called cholera. And cholera was taking thousands upon thousands of lives. In fact, one minister in one day, he had to bury 13 people from his congregation. The funny thing about cholera in that day was they don't have the medical technology we do. They don't have EEGs and EKGs and and the knowledge to, to really determine what the source of it is. And then if a person is truly even alive, and there were times people with cholera would slip into a coma. And because they they thought they were dead, they would literally bury people alive. And so they came up with something called the safety coffin. And you could Google this and read about it later today if you want to. But the safety coffin was very simply a coffin that they would bury. and, and, And on the lid of that coffin and attached to it was a pole and a pipe. And it would go all the way up to the surface, and through that pipe they would extend a rope tied to the wrist of the dead person, and above ground there would be a bell. And so if that person woke up once they were buried alive, they could ring that bell and say, hey, I'm not dead yet. I mean, somebody get a shovel, somebody get me out of here. And they would be free. You know, some of you this morning, I think you feel in your heart, my marriage is dead. My family life is dead. My career is dead. My my relationship with Jesus Christ that once was so vibrant and strong, it's dead. And yet, perhaps today is the day because of the Spirit of God within you you can say, I'm not dead yet. I brought this bell, just one bell, to church today. And you know what this is? It's not just an object for our worship service. Here as we sing this last song, I'm going to put it down on the floor. And I'm going to ask for those of you this morning, I just wondered if there was someone here who would like to commit their soul to God and ring the bell and say to each other, I'm not dead yet, I'm still alive. I'm still breathing. And again, maybe you feel like everything in your life is dead today. Maybe you feel like your addiction, like your relationship is dead and you're never going to break the surface. Well, maybe today you'd like to join me and ring the bell and say, I'm not dead yet. I'm still alive. Friends, there are no perfect people in this church. There is only people who, by the grace of God, follow Jesus. And there are people here today that need grace. So maybe you'd like to take ownership of something within your life. So we're going to stand. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand with me now. We're going to pray. The praise team is going to lead us in singing. And as God leads you, don't do it because somebody next to you is doing it. But do it as God leads you. 
If you feel led to come up and ring this and say, you know what? My marriage isn't dead yet. You know what? My place in this church is not dead yet. My, my belief, my hope, my trust in, that God can heal is not dead yet. And friends, you'll be in good company. 2,000 years ago, hope was born through the life, the death, and the burial of Jesus Christ. His enemies rejoiced that he was out of the way. The disciples, though hoping and wishing, were discouraged, and they locked themselves away in an upper room. But three days later, Jesus said, I'm not dead yet. I'm alive here. I'm alive. And because I live, you will live. I am the resurrection and the life. You believe in me, even though you die, you're going to live again. But friends, you have to take ownership. We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. But can you give God praise? We're alive. And maybe today in doing this, it's time to say, I'm ready to give Jesus my life, my all. I'm ready to accept him not only as my Savior, but as the Lord of my life. If that's the desire you have on your heart, I want you to share that with me. We're not going to pray before we sing. We're just going to sing. I want this bell to be your prayer this morning. Now again, if you feel God leading you to come, and and this is going to be part of our worship song, our song of dedication this morning. But you come as we sing. Guys.